We do always ask a continued interest in your prayers. We pray that the message this morning would be instructing and uplifting. We sort of introduced a a minor thought last week when we said to you that there are enough pictures of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament that show us that He is coming. There's there's enough types in men. There's enough characteristics in the way that men operated in the Old Testament that we can look and see, I see Christ in this person. There's also enough sin in that person to show us why Christ has to come. And that's just such a wonderful thought, I think, for us to contemplate when we read through the Scriptures that we not only see Christ we see His purpose. We see the need for Him. We just see how great He is. So I, got, I, I was thinking this week, Jesus is coming. So what? That's a little brash and a little harsh. Uh, Jesus is coming. What does that mean to us? Because it means one thing to somebody and something completely different to somebody else. The story, the the writing, the, uh, the whole of the Scripture that says Jesus is coming is not a story to terrify little children. Jesus is coming is is not a story to frighten the lost and unsaved world. First off, the lost and unsaved world doesn't care that Jesus is coming. There's a there's a popular phrase, popular thought that's taught in Christendom today that there's a uh, lost and dying world. Dying untold. There's an untold world dying untold. I would submit to you that the lost and dying world does not care that they are lost. They do not care that they are dying and they do not care that they are untold. As a matter of fact, you can uh, gather from this in Second uh, Peter. Second Peter writes uh, in chapter 3 concerning this subject or this concept. Let's turn over there. Just briefly, before we get to our our main passage in Second Peter chapter three, I'd like you to notice beginning in uh, verse three, it says, "Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days." Notice that term, "last days." In the last days, scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, "Where is the promise of his coming?" For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Now, just just from a natural perspective, is that true? Has the world continued exactly the same way, in exactly the same manner, since the time it was created? No, it hasn't. And Peter, Peter speaks of that here. He says in verse 5, For this they willingly are ignorant of. Not that they are untaught ignorant. Not that they are mentally incapable ignorant. They are willingly ignorant. They don't want to know what I'm fixing to tell you. They refuse to acknowledge 
what I'm fixing to tell you. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. All things have not continued since the beginning, because there was this great thing we know called the flood. Evolutionists have debated creationists for years. The evolutionists are not debating creationists just on our point of view. Down through the years, uh, some good and godly men of ours have been called on to defend what we as primitive Baptists believe in public debate. Whether it's, you know, uh, 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 J.D. Holder from Corinth, Mississippi debating Gus Nichols. Uh, who was of the Church of Christ, or whether it's the, the case Shrigley debate that, that's uh, well-known amongst, amongst our people, or maybe even there's some other people that you'd have never even heard of. They've been called upon to debate other religious leaders, other denominations, on their point of view about God. Not that God exists, but what do you think about God? But evolutionists have stood and debated with creationists not on their point of view of God, but that God doesn't exist. And we've debated that He does exist. They don't care. Actually, they're more happy if He doesn't exist. And of course, that's, that's a sermon all into itself. Because if there is if there is not a God, if there is not a supreme authority who from the beginning set all things in motion, then there's nobody that I am accountable to. I can be my own person and do my own thing. And really, that's the backbone of a lot of the disbelief that you see in the world around us. Evolutionists are not debating us on whether there, on, on our opinion of God. They're debating on whether there is a God. Lost and dying world is not dying to know. They don't care. Essentially on their last day, they're an atheist all dressed up, no place to go. Right? The story of the coming of Christ is not a story to frighten little children. The story of the coming of Christ is not a story to frighten the redeemed. For they should be looking for His appearing. Uh, notice in Second Thessalonians, just, just a few uh, books back from where we're at in, in Peter. Uh, you can start in Second Thessalonians. And notice Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him. What a wonderful thought. The coming of Christ then equals what? Our gathering together unto Him. Were any of y'all afraid to be here this morning? It shouldn't have been anybody afraid to show up this morning. shouldn't have been anybody afraid to be here around other people that are God's people. Delighted to be here. 
Now, brethren, we beseech you by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. Now, the reason that Paul reason that Paul's writing this is if you go back and you read First Thessalonians, he starts telling them about the second coming of Christ. And some of them kind of get a little weary about that. Uh, Some of them just said, well, if he's coming, we'll just quit our jobs and we'll sit down and wait. And and Paul said, well, that's that's not what you're supposed to do either. But you're also, you were not to be terrified by the second coming of Jesus Christ. Notice also uh, in 2 Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter uh, 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6, Paul says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Uh, When I was younger, I was not ready to depart. When I was younger, I had my whole life ahead of me. had a woman I wanted to marry, maybe children we wanted to have, uh, experiences in life that we wanted to experience. How many of y'all had that? And how many of y'all have just had just about enough of this world as you can stand right now? And we can gladly say, I'm ready to be offered. And I wish the time of my departure was at hand. Paul says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Now, I feel it necessary always to pause when we read this verse. Always to pause when you read this verse. That verse does not say, therefore, there is a crown of righteousness laid up. Paul has done all of this, and because of that, therefore, there is a crown of righteousness laid up. You see, you see what we're looking at here? That That's a works system. I've done this, therefore, something abides, something waits on me. That's not what the text says. The text says, despite what I've done, good or bad, from this point on is what henceforth means. From this point on, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but look at this, but unto all them also that love His appearing. The second coming of Christ is not a fearful thing to us. It should be something that we look for and we long for and that we love or that we will love when it gets here. Uh, One final one on this is Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. Titus chapter 2 verse 13 says, Looking for that blessed hope. It's not just a hope. It's a blessed hope. It's not just you hope your football team wins this weekend and then when they don't, what is it? Wait till next year. I had a little joke I was going to throw in on that, but I won't do that this morning. This is not just a hope. This is a blessed hope. This is a sure hope. This is a firm hope. We are looking for a blessed hope 
and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Second coming of Christ, or the coming of Christ at all. So you need to stop and think about that. The coming of Christ. He came once. He came once. He did something. He's coming back. He's coming back to do something else. The wicked are not afraid of the coming of Christ. The wicked will mock us until Christ gets here. They will laugh at us. They will mock us. They will make fun of us. They will call us names. And they will not be afraid, or they are not afraid, of His coming. They will be afraid at His coming. When they cry unto the rocks and the hills and the mountains, and they say, as John writes in Revelation, hide us from the face of the Lamb that sits upon the throne. <laughs> hide us from the wrath of the, of the Lamb. When was the last time you were afraid of an itty-bitty lamb? How messed up in your thinking do you have to be to be afraid of a little bitty lamb? But how great will this lamb be to terrify and tremble the nations? Jesus is coming. So what? Turn with me to the Old Testament now. <clears throat> we will turn first to the book of Numbers, and then uh, we will turn for our main point to the book of Genesis. Numbers 24. We've touched a time or two on the story of Balaam, this prophet that went astray. He became a prophet for profit. A paid speaker is what he was. The king said, come over here. Curse Israel because they're my enemy. I'll pay you great riches. I'll give you this. Fortunately, Balaam at this point didn't have much sense at all. But he had enough sense to say, I can't do anything to curse Israel. He did have enough realization, though, in his life, as he would explain to Balak, that if you want Israel to fall, you can't do anything to them. You have to convince them to fall themselves. And they did. America's not great. America, America will not fall, essentially, from forces on the outside. We're cutting our own throats from the inside, is what he was saying. And the church itself that, that has stood for 2,000 years from a practical standpoint will not fall from the onslaught of wickedness outside of us. We will, the doors of this building will cease to close when we don't want it to be open anymore from one standpoint. When the pursuit of the world becomes greater than the pursuit of God in our lives. This building will no longer be here. It's not, it's not an eternal application. You're a primitive Baptist, right? You've read the Bible. You understand the difference between the effects of eternity and the effects of time. I could cut my arm off right now. 
and I'd spend the rest of my days on this earth without an arm. Be disarmed. But that won't affect how I will exist in eternity. Because when I get to eternity, what will Christ do but make all things new? But thankfully, at least at this time in Numbers 24, Balaam had enough understanding of God. And God had given him enough vision to see something. I'd like for you to notice here in Numbers 24, uh, beginning in uh, verse 17. I shall see him. Well, let's read verse 16. Numbers 24, verse 16. He has said, which heard the words of God and knew the knowledge of the Most High, which saw the vision of the Almighty falling into a trance, having his eyes open. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, a star representing glory and majesty, illumination. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Scepter is uh, an image of authority and power. Uh, kings held scepters in their hands. There's a reference to this in the book of Esther. When, uh, when Mordecai tells Esther, there's a plan over here by wicked Haman. Haman wants to exterminate all the Jews out of the land. And, and you're the wife of the king. You need to go to this king and you need to tell him what has occurred and you need to uh, uh, mediate. You need to uh, stand in between uh, Haman and your people and speak to the king. She says, how am I supposed to do that? Even though I am wife to the king, she says in Esther chapter 4 and verse 11, she says, how can I go in there and speak to this king I have not been called to come into him, and unless he extends to me the scepter, I shall die on the spot. Friends, there's a heap of preaching in that. Unless the king extends the scepter, those who come in his presence die on the spot. Boy, there's a heap of Jesus in that. What does, what does, what does the prophet see here? He sees a star coming out of Jacob and a scepter rising out of Israel and he shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth and Edom shall be a possession. Seir also shall be a possession for his enemies and Israel shall do valiantly. And a lot of what's under consideration here was fulfilled in King David. If you go and you read second Samuel chapter 8, uh, verse 2, and 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 14, you will find that a lot of what's under consideration here was fulfilled in King David. We might very well say that King David was the first true king of Israel. You say, well, what about King Saul? Yeah, what about him? But where did King Saul come from? King Saul was a result of the rebellion of Israel. They wanted a king to judge them like all the other nations. And boy, I tell you what, 
Anytime the church wants to be governed or ruled like all the other nations are, we're in trouble. Anytime God's people think the hope for the church and the hope for this world comes from the White House instead of God's house, we're in trouble. Because those people in the White House are in there for one reason and one reason only, most often, personal power. They are no different than Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 5 or Daniel 4 who walked out on his terrace and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have created by my might, for my glory, and for my power? People we put in office today are no different. They walk out, they thumb their lapels, and they say, look at me, who I am, and where I'm at. And you have to remind them, you may be greater than me, and they are. But there's one greater than you, and that's God. Here he says, I shall see him, but not now. Isn't that, isn't that a wonderful statement? I shall see him, but not now. You ever look in the Bible and see? You ever see the figures? Do you ever see the types? Do you ever see the information pointing to the Christ? When he came the first time, born king of the Jews, There was a lot of them that did see him. And still they didn't see. They saw a child. They saw a person. They saw a babe. They saw nothing else. They saw a 12-year-old who was talking in the market square uh, with the doctors of the law. Confounding the wise. Confounding the mighty. They saw this child, but that's all that they saw. They saw him then. They saw him walk on water. They saw him feed 5,000. They saw him cleanse the leper, heal the sick, heal the lame, heal the blind, raise the dead. But that's all they saw. They saw nothing else. I know that there were three crosses that day. Christ on one and the two thieves, either on one hand and the other, right hand, left hand, however it was. If it had been up to the Pharisees, they'd had four crosses up there. They'd put Lazarus up there also. Because when Jesus said to him, Lazarus, come forth, many of the common people, the regular people, folk like you and I, followed him because of what he did. But the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the rulers, all they saw was a troublemaker. And you know, a lot of times in your life, if you don't have your head screwed on right, Jesus is just a troublemaker to you, isn't He? Because there's a lot of things I'd want to do in life, but I just don't have bail money today. Right? There's a lot of things we might think about doing in life. But praise God, there's still a conscience in you and me given to us by the Holy Ghost that says, that way is not right, let's go another. We see. We see what's laid out for us. And we hope one day we'll see Him again.
Now, in the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis chapter 49. Jesus is coming. So what? What does that mean? Chapter 49 and verse 1 says that Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. I drew drew your attention to that earlier on in one of the other verses. There's something going to happen in the last days. Now, is it the last days of Israel or the last days of this world? Yes. Why not? Gather yourselves together and hear, ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel, your father. Jacob is dying at the end of this speech. At the end of the blessing of the tribes, Jacob will gather his feet up in his bed. He will die and he will be no more. Be no more on this earth. One of, one of the greatest ways, one of the most blessed ways to pass this scene of life is that Jacob will draw his feet up in his bed and he will die praising God. I don't know if I'll have this opportunity. I don't know if I'll even be anywhere halfway like this. I don't know if y'all will be like this. But in his blessing, in his speaking to uh, the tribes, you start reading and there's, there's some roadblocks here. We know that there's a pattern laid out for us in the Old Testament that the firstborn male of the family received the greatest blessing of all the other children. But Reuben is the firstborn in this text. And Reuben's going to miss something. And then you have his brothers, Simeon and Levi. Well, you think, well, if the firstborn's going to miss it, maybe it's the second. Maybe it's the third. Nope, they're going to miss it too. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, verse 3. My might and the beginning of my strength. The excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Whoa. Imagine having that characteristic hung around your neck for the rest of your days. I mean, parents can put some some loads on their children, but look at that. <laughs> the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, the excellency of power. You're the firstborn. You're, you're, you're the first one to carry on the family name. What are people going to think about the family name when that name is connected to you after I die? He says, but in verse 4, he's unstable as water. Children often ask me as we're, as we're driving, Daddy, why does, why does the road twist and turn so much like it does? Y'all ever thought about that? I'm sure the older generation has thought about that. I'm sure you know why it's thought about like that. Because most roads in days past followed a waterbed. 
and water and men have become greatly crooked following the path of least resistance. Because that's what water does. It just goes where the least resistance allows it to go. Reuben was unstable as water. Never solid on one point or the other. Uh, James says in James chapter 1 in the New Testament, an unstable man or a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He says, you're unstable as water. Thou shalt not excel because thou wentest up to thy father's bed. Then defiles thou it. He went up to my couch. Reuben is going to miss his blessing in this life because of sexual immorality. This nation right now is eat up with sexual immorality. And they don't know what they're missing. They don't know the problems they are causing themselves. And then Simeon and Levi. What were their problems? Simeon and Levi were angry and cruel. Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitation. O my soul, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly. Mine honor, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they digged down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. Wow. Have I hit anybody in here yet this morning? Don't raise your hand. Now we come to Judah. Uh, the term Judah really means praise. That's what the, the Hebrew term for Judah means. Um, and Jewishness. When Paul talks about in, in uh, it's Romans 2, he talks about circumcision. And he parallels circumcision in the flesh in Romans 2 to circumcision in the heart. And he goes on to say that he is not a one that is a Jew that is outward, circumcision in the flesh. That doesn't matter anymore. What matters is circumcision in the heart. That God has done an operation in your heart. And Paul goes on to say, whose Jewishness is not of men, but of God. In other words, what Paul is saying is the praise that comes out of our mouth is not just because your parents brought you to church. It's not because your parents taught you to say uh, our father and Hail Mary. Your, your praise that comes out of your mouth is not of men. It's of God. It's an operation that God has put in you and is brought out of you. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Something's fixing to happen here in this family. The order is going to get turned upside down. They're not going to praise Reuben. They're not praising Simeon or Levi. They're praising Judah. And they will be glad to have one who is now head over the children of his father's family. Did I say that right? They're going to be glad to have this one who will be head over the children of his father's family. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar at all? Think about Hebrews chapter 2, 
We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man, for it becameth Him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect. Who's the captain of your salvation? Jesus is. But what does the world tell you? The world tells us you're the captain of your own ship. You're the captain of your own life. Fly how you want to fly. Live how you want to live. Drive down the road you want to drive down. And then the religious world just hops right on that and says, yeah, and if you want to go on to glory, do this, do this, do this, do that. Make sure that you make your election sure. Make sure that you make your calling sure. Make sure that you do something to secure your place in heaven. That makes me the captain of my salvation if I do that. I'm not the captain of my salvation. The perfect captain of your salvation is Jesus Christ. And it says there in Hebrews 2, he says, for which case he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name in the midst of the church. And then he say, the last portion of that in Hebrews 2, he says, Christ shall say to the Father, behold, I am the children which thou hast given me. Here, Judah is going to stand as the person of Christ. He will take care and provide for the family of Israel. I and the children which thou hast given me. And he says here, thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Uh, I said a little bit earlier that a lot of this was uh, fulfilled in King David. You ever remember reading in uh, Psalm 18 and verse 40? Psalm 18 and verse 40 that David says, Thou hast also given me the necks of mine enemies. The first real king of Israel was David. Saul was chosen by God, but at the people's request. We want a king like all the other nations. God said, okay, I'll give you a king like everybody else. See how you like it. I'll let you vote for who you want to vote for. See how you like it. And Saul was a miserable disaster, wasn't he? But then along comes this little shepherd boy, little David. And God said this, what is the one thing that we, what is the one characteristic that we attribute to David more than anything else that people know about him. But he was a man after God's own heart. Now, that was said, I believe that's quoted, I believe it's quoted by, by Peter in the book of Acts. And that was said about David when he was a young shepherd boy. I was probably closer to God when I was younger than I am now. Probably, possibly, maybe. Didn't have the bitterness of this world that I've got now. Didn't have the distrust of people that I have now. Didn't have to drive in traffic like I have to now. And, and that's both literal and figurative. Right? And you'll find in David's life, David subdued 
every one of his enemies. But there was a reason, though, there was a reason that David couldn't be the full fulfillment of Christ. He was partial. Couldn't be the full one. Because David was a man of war. And God said, you're a man of war. You're not going to build my house because my house will not be built by fighting. And that is that is the God's truth if it was ever told. The, the, the most problems that we have ever had in, in our churches has been preachers fighting. And our churches never grow during times of argument and fighting and disruption. But Solomon comes along, and it is. It is a time of peace and a time of tranquility. Time of peace and a time of tranquility. You say, what's your, what's your point in that? Notice this. Uh, let's read here. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. By thy father's children, thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion. And as an old lion, who shall rouse him? In, in other words, he's going to be in a position of tranquility. He's going to be in a position of peace. He's going to be in a position that he'll just kind of lay down. And who is there going to come up that's going to threaten him and rouse him, wake him up? No one. Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Jesus is coming. So what? Balaam said, I see him now, but not quite. Jesus is all over this verse right here. Do you see him? You say, well, I'm trying to. Well, let's look at him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Uh, scepter is a uh, emblem of dominion, power, and authority, right? A lawgiver shall not depart from the feet of Judah. And, of course, this is, uh, this is found in various places throughout the Scriptures. Uh, Psalms chapter 60 and verse 7 says specifically that Judah is my lawgiver. Psalm 60 and verse 7. Uh, when in the book of Judges... When, when they crossed over the Red Sea and now they're going in here to Canaan's land, the tribe that led the charge to destroy all the other nations was the tribe of Judah. He went forward. He conquered. There was another couple of tribes that went with him and said, yeah, we'll join with you, but he's the head of the spear. He's leading the way. And this promise is that the scepter, authority... And the giving of the law shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. If you get out your Strong's Concordance and you look up that, that name Shiloh and look up its definition, uh, it'll come from two 
Hebrew words that essentially mean tranquil, secure, successful, happy, prosperous, and safe. Who is more safe than Jesus Christ? Who is more at peace than Jesus Christ? Who was the one that was on the boat in the New Testament fast asleep while the storm was raging? Was it the disciples? No, it was Christ. Why? Because He's a lion at rest. Nobody bothering Him. Nothing's bothering Him. Nothing's troubling Him. He is not worried about the stock market. He is not worried about anything else that's going to happen in life because He's in charge of it all. I'm the one who wakes up three in the morning fretting over my day. I'm the one who can't go to sleep at night because my brain won't shut off because I can't quit thinking about how bad life is. I'm the one of little faith. I'm the one troubled by life. I'm the one troubled by disasters. I'm the one troubled and perplexed with things going on around me. I'm the one who thinks I'm sinking in deep despair. He is not. He is not worried about this. There's not a single thing coming on this earth that the Lord Jesus Christ is ever worried about. He is a lion reposed and couched. Who will rouse him? He is the great Shiloh of Israel. Now, the scepter, the authority, the giving of laws that was given to Judah disappeared right at the time Christ came. You say, no, how do we know that? Jesus Christ is arrested, and he's taken before Herod, taken before Pilate, taken back to Pilate, taken back to Herod, this, that, and the other. And there was, there was a statement that was made, I believe by Pilate, concerning this man. He says, I find no fault in him. Y'all remember that, right? Act like you know what I'm talking about. We're going to be here all day. He says, I find no fault in him. But if it's a breaking of one of your laws, remember that? Y'all see to it. And it was at that point where they, they hollered out and said, it's unlawful for us to put any man to death. You know, that verse, that verse has always kind of puzzled me a little bit. Because... These Pharisees come before Pilate and they come before Herod and all these men and they say, you know, it's unlawful for us to put anybody to death, right? I mean, that, that's in your Bible just like it's in mine, right? And yet Jesus spent three and a half years running from Pharisees and Sadducees who were ready to stone him, weren't Right? Remember that? They picked up stones several times to stone him. All of a sudden, no, we can't do that. You could do it over here. Why can't you do it now? Hypocrite. See, somebody says, I, I just, I, I can't stand being part of the church. There's too many hypocrites there. I, I, I'm never, I would never come forward and be baptized and be a, a, a part of a, a bunch of hypocrites like you all. And, you know, friends, come on. we got room for one more. Hypocrisy runs deep in every one of us. You know how I know? You're a son of Adam. When the Bible talks in Romans 5, that death had passed upon all those, even on those who had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, it means you ain't done what Adam did, but you're done enough. 
You may not have done what I've done. I may not have done what you've done. But we've all collectively done enough. Here they stand up and they say, it's unlawful for us to put any man to death by our law. What's happened? The scepter has departed and the lawgiver has gone out from between their feet because then they will holler out when Pilate says, "Uh, do you want me to release unto you Barabbas or Jesus, king of the Jews? And what did they say about that? Remember what they said about that? They said, we have no king but Caesar. Lawgiver's gone. Their authority's gone. And Shiloh has come. Jesus is coming. So what? Came the first time, as the wise men said, where is he that is born? King of the Jews. When Nebuchadnezzar walked out on that great balcony, proclaimed so greatness about himself, while the words were yet warm in his mouth, God removed from him his common sense and his common understanding and drove him out into the field and his, his hair grew out like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird claws. And I used to, I used to hear preachers years ago say, I always wondered what that looked like. Then the 70s and the 80s come along and we figured out what it looked like. But there's something that Nebuchadnezzar says, and I will submit to you that Nebuchadnezzar had not only a change of mind, but a change of heart. He says, at the end of the days, I like that phrase, the end of days, the end of those days, the last days. He says, my understanding returns unto me. He said, I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. His scepter, his authority, is an everlasting authority, is an everlasting dominion. And whose kingdom is from generation to generation. Psalm 72 verse 8 says that he shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Turn over and you can read. Book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. As here, Apostle John has this great vision of heaven's pure world. There's this book in the hand of him that sits upon the throne. And John says, there was no man in heaven, nor in earth, nor under the earth worthy to take this book and to loose the seals thereof. And John wept bitterly. Those in heaven wept bitterly that there was no man worthy to take this book. But then John writes Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. He said, One of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold the lion of the tribe 
of Judah. The root of David. And in, in another place, the very, uh, actually it's the last chapter of Revelation, this lion of the tribe of Judah is not only called the root of David, but also uh, the, the root and offspring of David. He, he is the root of David and the offspring of David. David came from him and he came from David. So, for those of you that don't believe in the Trinity, that how can one person be two, two different things at the same time, figure that one out for me. Because David came from him and he came from David. Weep not the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. He came the first time to be king of the Jews. He came the first time to give his life a ransom for many. Did you ever notice how many times This first appearing of Jesus Christ established so much of his authority. Jesus is coming, so what? Friends, if he's not coming in authority, and if he's not coming in power, then nothing he does is going to matter. If Jesus Christ does not have all authority and all power to do his will, he can't do anything. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Notice this. Verse 6. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, thy throne O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Boy, isn't that wonderful? It's a scepter of righteousness. There's a lot of crooked things that go on in this world today. Criminals are not always behind bars. Criminals are sometimes putting people behind bars. There are good judges, but I guarantee you there are corrupt and wicked judges. There are good police officers, but I guarantee you there are corrupt and wicked police officers. There are good preachers and there are corrupt preachers. Jesus Christ does not have a scepter of hypocrisy like you and I do. He's got an authority of righteousness forever and forever. And did you notice that it does say in the text here that God says to my God, sit thou at my right hand. Well, he's quoting, I'm kind of getting confused. He's, he's, he's quoting from uh, Psalm 2, I believe it is. He's quoting this from. When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, thy scepter, thy throne is established forever, and thy scepter is a scepter of righteousness. Jesus is coming. There's no doubt about that. The last thing that uh, I want to bring to point here was, he said in, in, in 
Genesis 49, he says, And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'd like for you to notice this verse here. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Uh, let's, let's start with verse 21. Get a little bit of context on this. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 says, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. You know, if, if there's not a text to tell you so what, why the importance for Christ's coming, if that's not that text, I don't know what is. Notice this, he says, But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's, at his coming. He's talking about the second coming of Christ here. Then come the end. I'd like for you to know that when Christ comes back the second time, that's going to be the end. He doesn't say, then cometh a thousand year reign. Then cometh seven years of tribulation, followed by this, that, and the other. When Christ comes back the second time, what does the Bible say here? Then cometh the end. Notice the next phrase. When he shall have delivered down the kingdom to reign at the... That's not what your text says. You know, it's not what mine says either. When Christ comes back at the second time, then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom. He shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. There's a lot of things that I don't particularly like about the religious world. I grew up listening to contemporary Christian music as a child and Christian rock music. And some of it was okay. Some of it was a bit hokey. Some of it was a bit dumb. But there was one thing that I did like the most. There was a band named Petra. And they wrote this song called Grave Robber. Beautiful song. And there's a tagline in it that speaks about when Jesus Christ, the great grave robber, comes back and death finally dies. I don't know if that was original with them or not. That's where I first heard it. Even if they hadn't written it, that's a great thing. And that's probably the greatest thing that we look forward to in this life is that Christ is coming. So what? Yeah, what does that mean to us? Death finally dies. Our loved ones stop leaving us. And we'll be the greatest family reunion ever been. Christ comes back and death finally dies. Disappointment and sorrow and heartache and trouble and trials and problems and difficulties and, and faults and failures and fighting amongst nations and fighting amongst people and fighting amongst churches and fighting amongst families finally dies when Christ comes back. And unto Him shall the gathering of the people be. Boy, that's great. And I think that's probably a good place to stop. So thank you for your good attention this morning.